This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. I think in my old age, I've come to realize just how precious everything is, and I try to value the many blessings that have been bestowed upon me. But there's also this sense of vulnerability if fortune took a turn for the worse, and you live with the awareness that anything can happen in this world. On the evening of May 27th, 1998, Phil Hartman, the legendary comedian known best for his eight-year run on SNL and countless voices on The Simpsons, got into a heated argument with his wife, Bryn, in their home in Encino, California. Although many said the couple always seemed happy in public, these accounts only masked the truth of their deeply troubled relationship. Bryn, Hartman's third wife and an actress herself, was often described as emotional, volatile, and profoundly insecure about her husband's burgeoning fame. 49-year-old Phil was a genial and affable presence in public, just Google some of his late-night talk show appearances, but in private, close friends knew him to be more withdrawn and even sullen when he wasn't in performance mode. The dynamic was combustible, with Phil's emotionally distant responses only serving to further inflame Bryn's rage-fueled outbursts. His good friend Stephen Small said Phil would describe the couple's basic dynamic in this way, I go into my cave and she throws grenades to get me out. The dynamic was even more dangerous when Bryn's substance abuse issues reared their ugly head. She'd been a recovering alcoholic and cocaine user for years, but had spent much of the previous decade trying desperately to maintain her sobriety. Recently, however, she'd begun drinking and using cocaine again, something Phil was very concerned about. And to compound matters even further, Bryn also battled depression. And when mixed with alcohol and drugs, her medication would often lead to even more violent outbursts. On this particular night, Bryn had spent the evening at Buca de Beppo with a friend, Christine Zander, who was a supervising producer on the hit NBC sitcom Third Rock from the Sun. Bryn had appeared in a few episodes of the hit show, but unlike her husband, never really found much sustained success in Hollywood. Nevertheless, Zander later said that Bryn was in a good frame of mind and seemed content as she nursed a couple Cosmopolitans that night. Of course, the drinking did not sit well with Hartman, who previously threatened to end their marriage over her relapses. The couple fought for a bit, but this was not out of the ordinary in their relationship and typically followed the same pattern. Bryn would get amped up, the couple would argue for a little while, and then Hartman would withdraw and go to bed, only to begin the cycle anew. But this time was different. Sometime before 3 a.m., Bryn retrieved a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson handgun from a safe in the couple's home and shot Hartman three times from point-blank range as he slept. One bullet entered his right side, and two bullets were fired directly into his head, killing him instantly. Police would later remark that Hartman seemed to be smiling as if in the middle of a pleasant dream. He left behind two young children whose nightmare was far from over. I'm Derek Kaufman. I'm Jason Beckerman. And this is Last Days, Phil Hartman. The timeline following the murder of Phil Hartman is one of the most horrific, slow-moving tragedies in Hollywood history. Roughly an hour after Bryn shot Phil in the bed, she made a call and woke up her longtime friend, Ron Douglas, around 3.25 a.m. He lived in nearby Studio City, California. It's not entirely clear what transpired after she killed her husband, but before she called Douglas, although police suspect that Bryn continued drinking, perhaps did a little bit more cocaine, 
We're just not sure. Their children, nine-year-old Sean and six-year-old daughter Burgeon, apparently remained asleep in the home when the shooting occurred, thank goodness. Although Sean would later report hearing what he thought was the sound of slamming doors. Given the volatility of Phil and Bryn's relationship, such sounds may not have been entirely uncommon in their household. So once Bryn reached Ron, she initially lies and tells him that Phil wasn't home and left her a note that he was out for the night. She apparently told Ron that she didn't want to be alone and asked if she could go to his place. But Ron advised her that she couldn't just leave the kids alone in the middle of the night. She had a nine and a six year old and told her to drink a glass of milk, take some aspirin and go to sleep. Derek, just really uh, brief little moment here. The nature of the relationship between Bryn and Ron, there was some rumors, speculation that they had a romantic relationship, but I guess they're they're unfounded. Just in hearing the top and hearing this discussion, why she reached out why to she him. reached out to him? She's available. He's available to her at three thirty in the morning. We just don't know. No, there was some commentary that they may have had a romantic relationship early on, but they had a really long-standing friendship. You can imagine that maybe if you had a brief dalliance with yeah. someone who just became a very close friend over a period of time, it sounds like that's what Ron was in her life. Okay. In any event, around 20 minutes later, Bryn goes to Ron's house and she starts ringing his doorbell and banging on his door. Uh, He looks outside. He sees her clutching her Prada purse. She's wearing a long sleeve pullover T-shirt, some pajama bottoms and doesn't have any shoes on. So this looks like some sort of emergency. He goes out to greet her and smells a strong whiff of alcohol in her breath. And he starts to get angry because he knows Bryn, remember, and he knows her struggles with sobriety. But Bryn, knowing that she knows he he knows her that well, cuts him off and says, don't yell at me. Phil yells at me all the time. They then go inside the home and Bryn is an absolute mess. All of the accounts are consistent on this point. At, at some point, she blurts out that she killed Phil while she's discussing why she's in such distress with Ron. But Ron thinks this is just some drunken rambling. He Histrionics that, of some yes, kind, yes. This was a couple that was known to be volatile. Ron knew the history of their relationship and thought she's rambling. Uh, they probably just had one of these nasty rows. She passes out at that point, only to be roused up by Ron who says he's now concerned that she might have overdosed on pills. She's Mm -hmm. Remember, she's shoeless. She's in her pajamas. It's the middle of the night. She's left her kids at home alone. She goes off to the bathroom. She vomits. And several times this happens. She goes back and forth, vomiting, passing out, um, and then finally sobers up and has a glass of tea with Ron. Bryn then tells Ron to call the Hartman home. But of course, there's no answer at the time. Then, while she's rooting around her purse in front of Ron, the 38 caliber Smith & Wesson tumbles out of her purse. Now Ron is very, very concerned, so he immediately grabs the gun. He sees that this could be a more serious situation, but he opens the gun's chamber, or, or the, the, um, the barrel of the gun, and spins it, and he says at that point in time, he sees six cartridges in their chambers which to his mind meant that the gun hadn't been fired So yet. a real sense of relief there yes. that maybe what she was saying wasn't true and she hadn't done anything too awful that night. Right. Uh, so it's approximately two and a half hours that pass while Bryn and Ron are together, and she finally seems sober enough that Ron feels comfortable allowing her to drive home, and she agrees to leave and to go home only if Ron follows her back. It's hard to imagine that she's sobered up exactly what's happening going through her mind at this point. She obviously knows what, what Ron is going to find, what they're going to find when we get, they get back to the house. Uh, Ron, at this point, grabs the gun, double checks it. This time he notices actually something he had missed the first time, that there are, in fact, two to three bullets missing from the chamber, which he hopes means that Bryn had fired some warning shots during one of the couple's nasty fights. He's starting to sort of do that thing we do, which is what's a plausible, not so nefarious explanation for what I'm seeing here, because I'm starting to get very, very concerned. You're 100% right. He is clearly now seeing two bullets gone from their chamber. It ended up being three, but he sees two that he recognizes 
And his mind is just, how can I rationalize this to square with something that could be plausible for this couple that I know to fight, but I don't know her to be murderous. She's a good friend of mine. So he smartly, I suppose, takes control of this weapon, puts it in his trunk in a plastic shopping bag and drives back, trailing Bryn back to their home in Encino, the Hartman home in Encino. At around 6 a.m., Bryn calls her friend Judy and tells her, quote, I think I killed Phil. My life is over. She's now, again, she's sobered up, and the reality of what has happened is really hitting her. She's crying hysterically, blowing through red lights, speeding through the neighborhood streets. Judy finds out where Bryn is headed and heads over to the Encino home as well. So we have this confluence of three people coming together all, all at once at the, at the Hartman home. At the house, Ron goes to the master bedroom, peers in, and sees what he sees. Phil's motionless body, obviously covered in, in blood. At this point, full panic is setting in. Bryn calls her friends Steve and Marcy and tells them she killed Phil. They also get in their car and drive over. So again, all these folks coming to the Hartman house to see what's happening. Ron calls 911 at this point, reports that a man has been shot in the head and the neck, telling the dispatcher, quote, the wife shot him and they're both here. I'm trying to calm her down. She was drunk. She said she killed her husband. I didn't believe her. Ron also tells the dispatcher that he has what he believes to be the murder weapon in his position, possession, saying, quote, it's in my hand because um, she brought it to my house. Yeah, so you have to imagine this scene. It's absolute chaos. A bunch of friends are descending on the home. He's now finally called 911. And during this chaotic scene, so Ron has seen Phil Hartman's dead body at this point, but during the ensuing chaos of calling 911, Bryn closes the bedroom double doors and locks them. So yeah. she essentially barricades herself in With her, her own bedroom. She's inside of it. She's inside of it, yes. That's right. She is inside the bedroom. Ron is outside of the bedroom. Ron tries to get in desperately. He's banging on the door, but he can't get in. But he must have had some sense of calm that he at least had the weapon that he thought uh, had killed Phil Hartman and she couldn't do any harm to herself or others. However, Bryn then calls her sister, Kathy, in Wisconsin. This is around 6.21 a.m. in the morning. She says, again, Phil is dead. I'm sick. Tell the children that I love them. Kathy then hears Bryn let loose a series of anguished cries. She has discussed this in the media, and it's, it's, it's horrific to hear. At 6.32 a.m., the police call Bryn uh, a few times, and she answers, but the conversations are brief. She's crying uncontrollably, hard to understand. She says, blurts out, help me, and hangs up during one of the calls. Steve and Marcy, the two friends she had called, finally show up to the house as well, shortly thereafter, followed by the police. So now you can imagine Bryn is barricaded in this room, and there's a lot of people and a lot of commotion outside, so she's getting increasingly frantic. In all the commotion, actually, her nine-year-old son, Sean, gets up and shows Ron where his parents keep a key for the back door. Ron hands over the gun uh, Bryn bought to the LAPD officer, so that now that's safely in their possession. And Sean is placed in protective custody, so at least her young son is is safely with with police officers. Six year old Burgeon was still inside at this point, possibly asleep. Several police officers then make their way into the home and can hear Bryn talking to her sister Kathy on the phone, telling her to take care of her children and let them know how much she loves them. An officer at this point yells out to Bryn, prompting her to quickly hang up on Kathy. And this is the last phone call she'd make during these frantic final hours. And at 6.38 a.m., with the bedroom door still locked, surrounded by cops, Bryn settled into the couple's king-size bed next to her husband's lifeless body, put a Charter Arms 38 caliber 5-shooter, which was another weapon they had in the home, into her mouth and squeezed the trigger. She was just 40 years old. Police then cleared the house for safety, uh, removed young Virgin from her bedroom, and cops eventually threw a brick through the bedroom window and gained access to this grisly scene. 
We've been doing this for a while now, and this is the, I think, the, the most heartbreaking. I mean, these kids are in the house, obviously. All these stories that we do are heartbreaking to some degree or another. These people died too young. But this one is truly tragic. This this awful woman, obviously in, in a great deal of mental distress, kills her husband, then kills herself, leaving their two children uh, uh, orphans. It's an it's absolutely a, it's a horrific tale. Horrible, horrible yeah. tale. All right, let's talk, lighten it up a little bit here as much yeah. as we can. Let's talk about wh- where Phil Hartman came from, what, how he became, uh, who he became. So what exactly made Phil Hartman such a special part of comedy in the 80s and 90s? The answer lies in how his fellow castmates saw his role. Hartman was known as the glue during his SNL days, a reference to his ability to hold a skit together without necessarily being the focal point. And it's a quality that would really come to define his professional career. Hartman was born in 1948 in Ontario, Canada, the fourth of eight children. You can imagine being the glue uh, would be a helpful character trait in such a big family. Hartman would later remark, however, that being part of a big Catholic family actually made it hard uh, to get the love and attention he really craved in life. So he started seeking it elsewhere. The family moved to the United States when he was 10, where Hartman found his footing as a class clown in high school. A little fun fact, he was classmates with Squeaky Fromm, the Manson family member who tried to assassinate Gerald Ford in 1975. He apparently drew a picture of a little surfer in her yearbook. When you research Phil Hartman, as I, as I had to do in preparing this, uh, you see a lot of tidbits. He led a very colorful life yeah. where he sort of had this Forrest Gump quality where he ran into Squeaky Fromm. He worked, as, as, as you'll hear, as an artist for various bands in the 70s. He led, he packed a lot of life into a pretty yeah. short period of time. Yeah. He was smart, not particularly academic, and ended up dropping out of Santa Monica City College to become a roadie for his brother's rock band called Rockin' Foo. By the early 1970s, Hartman was bouncing around and scratching out a living on the periphery of the music scene. He was a very talented artist, and he ended up drawing the cover art for big bands like America and Poco. Oh, these are bands close to my heart. It's also around this time that he meets and marries his first wife, a beautiful 19-year-old named Gretchen Lewis. The marriage to Gretchen only lasted two years, and the couple divorced in 1972. And this would really be the start of a pattern for Hartman. He fell madly in love with Gretchen, and this was this beautiful hippie type. It really meshed well with his work in the music world. But Phil completely pulled away emotionally at some point, and his detachment doomed the marriage. It was a pattern, again, that would later play out play a role in his murder. In 1975, everything changed for Hartman when he joined the Groundlings, a legendary improv group in Los Angeles. The group was relatively new at the time, but has since become one of the principal feeder institutions for SNL. Along with Hartman, the list of Groundlings alums include Sherry Terry and Will Ferrell, Jimmy Fallon, Nassim Pedrod. While in the group, uh, Hartman became close with another cast member named Paul Rubens, who was developing the Pee Wee Herman show. Hartman played uh, Captain Carl and ends up regularly performing on the show. And you can see early on how his contributions would end up earning him the nickname Glue. Captain Carl! Permission to come aboard, Pee Wee! You have to know the passwords! Spaghetti! No! Sardine! No! Turnip! No! Toboggan! Well, sweet! I give up! You can't give up! You have to know the passwords! Open this door, Pee Wee! I gotta use you a dream! Have you ever seen Captain Carl, by the way? Uh, I don't know that I have. So, Pee Wee Herman, obviously, the show is all built around him, but it's the ancillary characters that make the show. And it's really sort of the first instance where you see Phil Hartman doing a, a zany character that makes the skit, but is not the focal center of the skit and it's it's something he would care about. You and I on. have really different tastes in pop culture. <laughs> <laughs> I love Pee Wee Irwin. Anyway, so it's around this point when Phil meets his and marries his second wife, Lisa Jarvis in 1982 and the Phil pattern pops up again. At first he's madly in love with Lisa but soon becomes sullen, withdrawn, emotionally distant, 
The marriage lasts around three years, uh, during which Phil's career really takes off. He gets uh, roles in the Gong Show movie, Cheech and Chong's next movie, and the couple ends up divorced in 1985. And in the years after his death, Jarvis is one of those people who has reflected on how the decay of her marriage to Phil really uh, opened a window into understanding the two sides of Phil Hartman, the public persona and the private one. The relationship changed dramatically. I was the wife and he no longer had to pay attention. He would tell me, you need to go have your own life. You're a black hole. No one could ever fill you. My sense of Phil was that he was really two people. He was the guy who wanted to draw and write and create and come up with ideas. I had my hair changed to pure brass. The actor entertainer. And then he was the recluse. One of Phil's friends has described this phenomenon, and they, they said something that I thought was very fitting. They said, as soon as you learn Phil's not marriage material, you're already married to him. And what they were trying to convey is he would really just love bomb the people who he was initially into. And this included Lisa Jarvis and his first uh, wife, Gretchen Lewis. They were like, he would just inundate us with love and then he would cut it off mm -hmm. and they would be left adrift and not really know what happened uh, and, and why necessarily he became so withdrawn. So after Phil's second marriage falls apart, he gets the break of a lifetime when he's invited to join the cast of SNL in 1986. He was 38 years old, a little bit older than the typical new cast member of SNL. And he actually became the oldest new cast member in the show's history. Although a venerable institution now, the show was actually in a bit of a slump before the 86 season. The departure of Eddie Murphy in 1984 led to a few terribly forgotten years with people like Robert Downey Jr., Anthony Michael Hall, Damon Wayans, and Joan Cusack heading up the cast. Although they'd all move on to great careers on the big screen, most people regard their time on SNL as an abysmal failure. These were dreadful years. Yeah, do you remember really, any I, of these? I, I, sure I mean, do. Julia Louis-Dreyfus, I, sure. I mean, great actors, yeah. but didn't fit well a in Eddie the Murphy SNL had mold. brought SNL up to heights it had really never seen since, the, since it began. And then there was this really, once he left, there were whispers of its demise and they were carried out. I mean, the show really nearly came it was close teetering. to being pulled off, off the air altogether. But the arrival of Hartman in 86 changed everything. He was paired with rising stars like John Lovitz, Dana Carvey, Dennis Miller, Jan Hooks, and Kevin Nealon. Some people regarded it as the strongest era in the show's history, and Phil Hartman was right in the middle of it all, providing memorable impressions of Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, Frank Sinatra, Ed McMahon. He also provided some of the most memorable original characters in sketch comedy history, like Unfrozen Caveman Lawyer. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury... I'm just a caveman. I fell in some ice and later got thawed out by some of your scientists. Your world frightens and confuses me. It's one of my favorite skits of all time as, as a lawyer. It made me want to be a lawyer, actually, Jason. I have to tell you, like, I saw this as a young kid, and I was like, I actually want to be that windbag lawyer. That was what I was aiming for. Wow. Yeah. All right. <laughs> It's also during this period that Hartman starts doing voice work for a brand new animated show call on Fox called The Simpsons. He his turn as fading Hollywood star Troy McClure and ambulance chasing charlatan lawyer Lionel Hutz makes an immediate impact and helped propel it to one of the most successful shows in television history. Uh oh, we've drawn Judge Snyder. Is that bad? Well, he's had it in for me ever since I kind of ran over his dog. You did. Well, replace the word kinda with the word repeatedly and the word dog with son. So look, his career is taking off. I wanted to give these indications of like Phil, Phil Hartman is such a 
you know, centerpiece of culture in like the late 80s and 90s if you're really into comedy because he's in The Simpsons and in SNL at the same time. And these are really sort of critical parts of comedic history. So as his career is taking off, he now meets Bryn Omdahl, who is this striking blonde from Minnesota. She's also trying to make it as an actress. And Phil, true to his pattern, is immediately smitten. Uh, the couple marries in 1987. This is just two years after his divorce from his second wife. And by most accounts, in the beginning, Bryn was funny and charming. She actually had briefly dated Rob Reiner prior to Phil Hartman, which Hartman thought was a plus because he was sort of striving to be a sort of Rob Reiner At type figure. At that time, figure. Rob Reiner's coming out or right in the midst of Harry Met Sally yes. and the Princess Bride. And he's, he's, one of the, he's one of the biggest people in Hollywood at the moment. Absolutely. So Bryn... Um, also had a history of cocaine and alcohol abuse at the time. Even when he met her, she'd been to rehab in Fargo before and had intermittent success with sobriety. And Phil really wanted to make things work with her. Um, his career is really beginning to flourish, obviously, when they meet in 87. Uh, but her lack of success in Hollywood would become this sort of constant source of frustration in their relationship and a real strain on it. Phil, throughout this period, would try to help raise her profile in various ways. Um, she's actually sitting with him. If you watch the introduction to Saturday Night Live, she's sitting with him uh, at the restaurant. It's just the back of her head. But he would include her in various ways to just try to get her face out there. Um, and even uh, brought her on the Howard Stern radio show, which was huge at the time, to help just get her name out there. And it's during this uh, Howard Stern interview that there's a moment that would become somewhat haunting in retrospect. Howard asked whether Bryn is friendly with Phil's former wives. Obviously, she was his third wife at the time. And it led to this somewhat uncomfortable exchange about Lisa, his second wife. No. Were they ever as beautiful? Gretchen on the phone never wanted to meet the second one. Were they as beautiful as Bryn? No. Not in her league. A lot of people have seen this interview after, obviously, the, the murder-suicide and seen it as a sort of an indication of Phil's discomfort around her. You could see, like, uh, let's not talk about this subject, not really wanting Howard to go there. And the way she's handling it and looking at Phil... It does. It does read a little bit strangely. Yeah. Uh, for her part, Lisa said she actually once wrote a letter to Phil after the birth of his uh, kid and received a very nasty, threatening letter from Bryn warning her to stay out of their lives or else. So notwithstanding his efforts to help her, aside from a couple episodes on Third Rock from the Sun, she never really gets any traction in the industry. So even with the mounting issues at home, Phil's career is keeps going up. After leaving SNL in 95, he became a star of the NBC sitcom News Radio, playing radio anchor Bill McNeil. Playing to his strengths, Hartman was attracted to the ensemble cast, and his radio-ready voice was a perfect fit for the bloviating radio star. Although the show was never a huge hit in the ratings, it was a critical darling and earned Hartman $50,000 per episode during its four-season run. Hartman even garnered a posthumous Emmy nomination in 1998 for the role. Phil also started enjoying the fruits of his success, buying boats and cars and relishing in the joys of fatherhood with Sean and Bergen. Uh, this is what made the murder-suicide so difficult to comprehend. Aside from a few people who knew about the couple's problems, this seemed like a very happy family. It, it really, I just wanted to emphasize that part, that it sort of came out of left field. When when he passed away, this was nothing like Chris Farley, who we covered in the last episode, who everyone saw in real time coming apart, losing his battle to addiction. You mentioned uh, the comment from Al Franken right after he passed that it simply wasn't surprising. It was somewhat expected almost, yep. even though he was young. Phil Hartman, this was an absolute 
absolute out of left field tragedy because in public, a lot of people would see Bryn as this charming and affable presence yeah. um, unless you really knew them and knew how volatile the relationship was. Following the tragedy, Sean and Burgeon, the two kids, were raised by Mike and Kathy Wright in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. This is one of the last people Bryn spoke with. And if you remember, Bryn was on the phone with Kathy and said, right. I killed Phil. Please take care of my children. She ends up taking care of the children. Um, she implored them to, and they actually followed through. So Sean, who's now in his mid-30s, is actually pursuing his dreams of becoming an artist and musician in Oakland, California. He even took after his father. He designed the poster for the action short Kimura's Vengeance, which is a movie. His dad, obviously, very famous for his art on uh, several album covers. Virgin, who was only three years old when this all unfolded, leads a bit more of a public life than Sean, and even attended the SNL 40th anniversary celebration in 2015. And in May 2017, she penned a heartfelt message on Instagram shortly after the 19th anniversary of the tragic death of her parents, expressing her gratitude for, for the support. Um, she said, it truly means the world to me, and my parents would be so happy to know that such a supportive community still exists for us after all these years. I don't know what else to say. I'm just so grateful. It's been a tough day, but I certainly don't feel alone. So thank you. So let's talk about the counterfactual. What happens if uh, Phil Hartman does not die that tragic day? What does his career look like? You know, he's still a uh, a mainstay of The Simpsons to this day. I know it's a show that you uh, love. It's uh, it's simply one of the most important shows in television history, right? It is, I think but even you have a if you're not you have a, a fan per, of you it. have a personal fondness for The Simpsons. Absolutely. And, and uh, you know, his characters are still played out to this day. You can still see all the reruns with Phil Hartman do, doing the voices. Um, and it's really what made, you know, help make that show such a cultural icon, such a yeah, it was a special Americana. show. Yeah, yeah, it really was. And, and his characters helped sort of carve out that role because they weren't the fixtures. It wasn't Homer Simpson. It wasn't Bart Simpson, but it was the magic of the sauce. And, you know, even on even as a as a voice actor. He's the glue. That's right. what you hear Kevin Nealon say it constantly. And on right. Simpsons, it was very, very apparent as well. It, it was. And so so he, I, I think he had a really bright career in front of him as sort of as he's getting older, he's nearly 50. He's going to start playing a more and more sort of grandpa role. I could see him doing a lot of the, sort of the, the same roles that, for example, Ben Stiller is playing, you know, as he's reaching that same age in his life. Those sorts of comedic roles opposite other great actors. He's always best in an ensemble. Yeah, always best so. in an ensemble. And it's how he saw himself, which I thought was always sort of a good fit. Like, everyone goes on SNL. If you're Chris Farley, you want to be the next John Belushi, the right. big breakout right. star. And he was doing it. Tommy yeah. Boy and Black Sheep are vehicles for Chris Farley to be a yeah. star. And you had David Spade supporting him. Phil Hartman saw himself as the next Dan Aykroyd, which right. I always thought was very fitting. He told the LA Times this, and it makes sense because Dan Aykroyd wasn't John Belushi, but he was right next to John Belushi. He right. was the other blues brother, and he always right. was value added. If you sort of think about Bill Murray in Ghostbusters or John Belushi in, in Blues Brothers, they're the bright stars, but Aykroyd's in both of those movies, right. and he sort of helps the whole production sort of come together. I think Phil would have been best served in those type of roles. One of our producers, Branson, thanks to Phil Hartman as the dad in Jingle All the Way, and he also filled a lot of those roles. I think he could have continued cashing checks as just sort of the straight man to Arnold Schwarzenegger's antics in some of those 90s movies. Right. But it, it, you know, Phil Hartman was never going. To, we were never going to see Phil Hartman be a huge leading man. It's not going to be the romantic lead in a lot of action in the movies. He's but gonna he would have made yeah. movies better for decades. Yeah. That's how I think of Phil Hartman. Yeah. So during his final show on Saturday Night Live in 1994, the cast did a Sound of Music style send off for the comedy great, which has now become a really poignant moment. The last two people on the stage are Phil Hartman and Chris Farley, with the elder statesman of the show cradling the larger-than-life Farley and at least metaphorically passing the torch to the next generation of stars on the show. Both of them would be gone just a few years later, so it seems only fitting to let Phil himself have the final word on this podcast. You know, I can't imagine a more dignified way 
to end my eight years on this program. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye.